Okay, we're going to Romans tonight. Romans chapter 1 to start with. Okay, if you're there, let's take a couple moments. Silent preparation. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of gathering together in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the knowledge that he is now here and that he is a very present help in time of trouble. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of looking into the perfect law of liberty, which is a fulfilled Torah of freedom in which we can truly become free. Mindful of the words of Jesus who said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. This truth is not any old truth, but it is the truth that is embodied in him, in the one who said, I am the truth. So as we look into that truth tonight, Father, we pray that it will have its transformative and liberative function in our lives, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. I'm going to ask the question tonight, where is boasting? Where is bragging rights? Where does man, whether it's an individual person or whether it's humankind in general, where does the right to boast come in, come in with man? This question is actually asked in Romans chapter 3, and we'll get there in a moment. But the answer, with regard to salvation, with regard to what mankind can do or an individual can do for salvation, where is boasting? Well, Paul basically says, and I'll show you how he says it, that boasting is nowhere. There's nowhere in the scripture and in Paul's writings where there can be any boasting on man's part as if he contributed something to his or her salvation. This is true not only on the level of all humankind, but it's true on the level of every individual. We've been learning, and it takes a long time to do so, because the series we're engaged in now takes a lot of study. It takes a lot of looking at what I call lower blade data, LBD for note takers, if there's any left among you. Lower blade data is scriptural textual evidence for the things that we're saying. And one of the main points we're getting into in our series called Better Call Paul is the understanding that justification or the rescue and divine deliverance that God has enacted in Christ is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, what people call justification is not through faith on the part of man, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who executed the obedience that God required of all mankind, an obedience that led to death even, even death by crucifixion. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name, so that as we know, at the mention of that name, Yeshua, every knee will bow. That's in the eschaton, the final moment of history. Every knee will genuflect. That's not forcibly, coercively, it's not because God is going to violently judge people and force them to bow their knees. It's voluntarily, it's even worshipfully, and it's related to praise. Every knee will voluntarily and adoringly genuflect, and every tongue will confess. And that, again, is a public, voluntary, uncoerced, worshipful confession that Yahweh, or the Lord, is Yeshua, Jesus. So there is no distinction between the so-called Old Testament God and the New Testament Jesus. For Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen my Father. These are many of the things that we're dealing with. But when it comes to boasting regarding salvation, where is boasting? Nowhere. But there is a place where boasting is appropriate on the part of man. As we know, Paul said in Galatians 6.14, may it never be, very strong Greek word, may it never be that I should ever boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, whereby 
I have been crucified to this world and this world to me. Paul was crucified to what we call the Adamic ontology, man's existence in the irredeemable nature of Adam. God has rejected that. God has not rejected mankind per se as people. Never will. Can't be done. Where is boasting? We have to say with regard to salvation, it's nowhere. But regard to something else, it's now here. I want you to see how this unfolds. This now here, we have the right to boast in our eschatological assurance. You see the ads on TV, e-insurance. I have one called e-assurance. Eschatological assurance, which is basically found in Romans chapter 8. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, neither peril nor sword, terrorism, famine, things present, things future, things in life or things after life in the afterlife, nothing. That's eschatological assurance. The gospel that is so-called and not really a true gospel that Paul is combating both in Romans and Galatians does not yield any eschatological assurance. It's boasting is toward man and man's efforts to be justified by the works of the law and therefore eschatological assurance is never granted to anyone as we know from Romans 2, 6 through 10, where this other teacher is talking, the opponent to Paul is talking, those who seek after immortality and incorruptibility shall find glory and they shall receive eternal life as a reward of their seeking, whereas Paul begs to differ and says there's none that seeks after God. So this other teacher says that the boasting is toward man's efforts, but man can't have assurance until the final judgment when God will weigh up or tally up the good versus the evil works and justify some and, of course, condemn others to an unthinkably horrific eternity, which has nothing to do with Paul's gospel, nothing to do with God's essence of love, which is endless benevolence but only to do with the concept of a God of anger and wrath and retributive justice. Now, God is just. That's an adjective that describes him. But God is love, and that's a noun that comprises him and that reveals him in his totality. So what we got so far in Romans, we have a filament of purely Paul. Paul purely. We've seen that Paul is also... Arguing with this other teacher, that's why he says, but what about you, O man? You are without excuse. And he's talking back and forth, sorting this out. I finally did it today with some help from Douglas Campbell's book. I finally sorted out all the way through Romans 2, who's talking and why they're talking, what they're saying, what the implications of it are. But there is a purely Pauline filament that goes through Romans. The primary parts have to do with Romans 1, 2b through 4. That's when Paul makes his initial statement. And then this travels to Romans 1, 16 to 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to those who have faith, to those who share in the participation of Christ's fidelity. They see the gospel as the power of God unto salvation, the power of God unto salvation, not the power of man to secure it by his own efforts, by works in in accordance with the law, or even by faith or through faith, not even faith alone, as Paul shows. There's two ways of reading Romans 4. That's going to be our biggest challenge so far. There's a thin reading where it looks like Paul is saying that Abraham is a paradigm for faith that leads to righteousness or justification. That's a thin reading. It's a superficial reading. There's also a thick reading of Romans 4, which is much more in-depth after much more reflection, which reveals that Abraham shared in the faithfulness of Christ before the incarnation and was a kind of an analogy to Christ's obedience to his father leading to death and then resurrection. And that leads also to the Christian's participation in the faithfulness. In other words, it's a Christological interpretation. 
The whole thing we're laboring for in Paul is a Christocentric, Christ-centered gospel. Not a man-centered gospel, not an effort-centered gospel, a divine initiation and a divine completion. I'm persuaded that he who began this good work in you will perform it until his day of completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God in you, both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. Both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. So look what we have in Romans 1. This is my translation from the Greek text. It bears up under scrutiny, I think. Paul, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart to the gospel of God, which he previously announced through his prophets in the sacred scriptures. There's two examples of this. The prophet Habakkuk, who said, the righteous one shall live or will live by faith. And that's interpreted as we've already done the homework for this in Romans 1.17. That righteous one is not any old person who's commanded to live by faith. It's Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. He's the righteous one in 1 Peter 3.18. He's the righteous one in 1 John 2.1, who is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He is the righteous one in 1 Peter 3.18, the just one, the righteous one who died for all the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. He didn't die to save us from God, as if God is an angry God. He died to bring us to God. And there's never a picture of God more poignant, more pointed, more clear than the picture of Christ crucified. Crucified, self-sacrificing love. If you've seen him, you have seen the Father. You know something of the Father's love. And he previously announced this through his prophets. Habakkuk 2.4 is one example. Isaiah 28, 16 is another when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's referring to the announcement of the gospel beforehand in which Isaiah 28, 16 talks about, I have laid in Zion a tested stone and he who shares in that fidelity of that tested stone shall not be ashamed. There will be no shame associated with it. And Paul therefore picks up on these two references of the prophets And Paul interprets it correctly under the Holy Spirit's guidance as being a previous announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he previously announced this through his prophets in the sacred scriptures concerning his son. We could say it's all about his son. The Greek word peri is used here, P-E-R-I, and that means all about. It is exclusively and all about his son. And that's what the gospel of God is all about. It is which he previously announced through his prophets in the sacred scriptures. It's the gospel of God concerning his son, says verse 3, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and designated as the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. I have a small diagram I'm starting to employ in this study. And it looks like this. Normally, we only consider the Christ event. That's what we would call the Christ event. Theologians call it that way. I don't think they're wrong. Christ event normally we used to think of as the cross of Christ, followed by resurrection. In Paul, however, as in all the New Testament, you have really something beginning in Micah 5.2 you have something that goes all the way back into eternity past. His goings forth have been from eternity. He's the eternally begotten divine son of God. He is divine as well, and he becomes human in a certain time in history, and that's the incarnation. So the Christ event includes the incarnation of Christ, the life that he lived in the flesh, the days of his flesh, as Hebrews 5, 7 says, in which he made great strong cryings and tears to God, and he was heard in that he revered God. And this was the days of his flesh. His incarnation to the point of the cross is also part of the Christ event, for he lived a life in vicarious obedience to God for us. His life was fidelity expressed to God for us, a fidelity 
that Israel could not express fully in all of her years and all of her times of history, but which one faithful Israelite did demonstrate Jesus Christ. His fidelity and obedience to the Father culminated in the cross. And in the cross, that's where his obedience came to the extent of crucifixion or death, even by crucifixion, Paul said, followed by resurrection from the dead. And that's what Paul speaks of here in Romans 1.4, designated as the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead by the spirit of sanctification. All the elements are here. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. The power of God exercised for man. Not man exercising his power for God. The power of God exercised for man in the Christ event. The mediator between God and man is only one. There's only one. It's the man, Christ Jesus. He's the mediator between God and man because it is only his fidelity that mediates between God and man. It is not our faith. It is his fidelity that mediates between God and man. So now my illustration of this Christ event begins all the way back from the eternal goings forth of the Son of Man or the Son of God from God. His incarnation and then the cross, the resurrection and then the the ascension and then enthronement, which I do a little chair or a throne here. All of these are part of the Christ event. And when we talk about Christ and him crucified, the whole idea in the tense of that, the whole idea in the concept of him being crucified means that he has been crucified and it sums up everything from his eternal preexistence to his incarnation, to his faithful obedience for us, to the Father, and to that obedience that extends to death. This is where God acted in Christ on behalf of the human race. I would say this. Here's another question. Where's the condition that man has to meet? If God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... And that word hamartolon is stronger than normal words for sinners in Romans 5, 6 and 5, 8. While we were still sinners, that is, while we were still in an active, contradictory, hostile stance against God, Christ died for us. The saving act of God in Christ for humankind was enacted in Christ without a view to stipulating man's Response without a view to a condition to man. Where was the condition that I had to meet in AD 30 when Christ died? The saving act of God in Christ is an unconditional act of God toward humankind. And this is now, of course, we have, we live in the messianic age. And the scripture says in Galatians 2.20, I was crucified with Christ. When it dawns on you, when God chooses and is pleased to reveal his son to you, which he does in his own time, then you begin to realize that your history is Christ's history. In the sense that when he was crucified, you were crucified. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. When he, was, when he ascended, you were lifted up and seated together with him in heavenly places. All of this has lower blade data. And Paul, especially in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, and yet it is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God, Paul said like this opposing teacher does, whom Paul warned them about in Romans 16, 17, and 18, Philippians 3, 18, and 19, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, really, and 1 through 4, many other passages. I don't frustrate the grace of God because if deliverance, justification or deliverance, comes by the works of the law, then Christ died for no reason. For nothing. This is what Paul is up against. This is what we're up against. 
It's my sad duty to announce to you that the majority of Christianity today that calls itself Christian, the message that it proclaims, really has nothing to do with the gospel according to the scriptures. As emphasis strongly, and this isn't by any means everyone, but it has a strong emphasis on our approach to God rather than God's initiation to us. And it's a sad thing. And that's why I'm glad God let me live this long to be able to get into this particular passage and these particular epistles of Paul. He was designated to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead by the Spirit of sanctification. Paul then does other introductory things which are wonderful and which we'll get to in the future. But this brings us to his thesis statement. One sixteen. there's a filament now of the gospel according to Paul, Paul's gospel, which is the gospel of God about his son. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Isaiah 28.16 is the allusion here, for it is the power of God to salvation. And he answers, to whom does that gospel look like the power of God for salvation? Those with faith, those who participate in the faithfulness of Messiah. To the Jew first, this is what this teacher is always talking about. It's the Jew first, the Jew first, the Jew first. Paul says it is to the Jew first, but it's also the Greek, the pagan, the heathen, the goyim, as the Jews would call irreverently. There's irreverence both ways. There's anti-Semitic feeling by Gentiles against Jews. There's anti-Gentile feeling by Jews against Gentiles. These are both reconciled in the gospel of Christ, and the hostility is destroyed in the cross of Christ. Notice what 17 says. This is really what we might say the key verse in Romans. For in it, the righteousness of God. Now, righteousness here, dikaiosune in the Greek, means God's righteous act of saving delivering and rescuing his people because this comes from another Old Testament passage Psalm 98 which we've studied Psalm 97 in the Greek text Psalm 98 in the English text it is right the king is right when he acts to rescue his people and so Paul says the righteousness of God which is really his saving act of God in Christ as the king and he is of the seed of David, which is the royal line. The, act of sa- the saving act of God in Christ the King is being revealed. That's where we get our word apocalypse. If you watch the news, if you watch movies, if you watch TV shows that are getting weirder and weirder by the season, apocalypse means the end of the world. Apocalypse means a debacle or a disaster, a catastrophe of worldwide proportions, universal proportions. But apocalypto means disclosure. It means revealed. It's a very positive word in the scriptures, especially here. The saving act of God in Christ is being apocalypto, unveiled. It's a saving act that God is revealing. Paul's gospel is an apocalypse, not of destruction, but of its ante- the antithesis of destruction, the restoration of all things. Acts 3.21. The summary of all things in Christ, Ephesians 1.10. The reconciliation of everything in the heavens and on earth, invisible and invisible, by the peace that was made through the blood of Christ's cross, Colossians 1.20. As it, just as it is stands written, he says, this is being revealed from what? From faithfulness. Not faith here. The word is ek. E-K. Now, I don't want to be too technical tonight, but I've been looking at this for two days, and I finally got it down to where I can communicate it. Ek pistios is the phrase that Paul uses here, but it's used, or a synonym of it is used 12 times throughout Romans. Throughout Romans, the word ek pistios is used. And when you use the law of first mention... In Romans, this word ekpistios means the faithfulness of the righteous one. This is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This is the point I want to drive home by repetition. It's not doesn't bother me to repeat 
And hopefully it's not grievous for you because to repeat these things is for your stability so that you'll understand these things, as Paul said in Philippians 3.1. Repetition, necessary on the part of a teacher. So, ekpistios means from faithfulness. Ek is a preposition that has to do with either source, cause, or reason. The saving act of God is being revealed from the source of faithfulness. But he describes who that faithfulness belongs to in the next passage when he quotes his key prophetic text. Just as it stands written. First of all, let's, let's get this whole thing straight. Let's look at verse 17 again. For in it, that's the gospel, The righteousness of God, the saving act of God in Christ is being unveiled, disclosed, revealed apocalyptically from faithfulness. That's Christ's faithfulness. And then ace pistis to faithfulness. That is Christ's faithfulness is then participated in by the church, which is his community. The faithfulness of Christ is it's our privilege. It's our giftedness to participate in. In Messiah's faithfulness. That faithfulness is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So verse 17 again. For in it the gospel. The saving act of God in Christ. Is being unveiled from faithfulness. That's Christ's. To faithfulness. That's participation by the saints. In Christ's faithfulness. Just as it stands permanently written. The righteous one. You should capitalize both righteous and one because it's Christ will live. That is a prediction of his resurrection in the Old Testament prophets. He will live. Zesatai. He will live. That means by resurrection. Because of his faithfulness. Paul said it a different way in Philippians 2 8, but the same thing. He became obedient, which we would call faithfulness, to the extent of death, even death by crucifixion. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. That high exaltation of him begins with resurrection. He will live. The righteous one will live on account of his faithfulness. Now, what Paul's going to get at at the rest of Romans is so will everybody else. For in Christ, all will be made alive, according to 1 Corinthians 15.22. And just as the disobedience of the one man, Adam, led to all becoming sinners, in Romans 5.18, so the obedience of Jesus Christ, which is, again, another word for his faithfulness. By the faithful obedience of the one, all will be graciously delivered, liberated, transformed. All those things come into that word justification. Again, we're going to clarify these things over and over again. So the righteous one will live. This is a prediction in Habakkuk 2.4 of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of his fidelity. Because of his fidelity. There's no such thing as saving faith. If there were, I could boast that I believed in Jesus Christ And therefore, I'm saved. There's no such thing as saving faith. There's a couple times in the synoptic gospels where Jesus says to someone whom he heals, your faith has saved you. Sozo. But it means your faith has healed you. Faith that he gifted them with heals them. So there isn't. But there is something called saving faithfulness. And it's not mine, but Christ's. Salvation, there's nothing man can do to get in, nor is there anything man can do to stay in. We get in and stay in through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, there's something after that, and I want to explain that. And I think I'm going to take tomorrow night and get into a couple of affirmations made by Karl Barth in his book, his 31-volume Christian Dogmatics. And I'm only on page 130 of Campbell's book, in my second reading, haha, <laughs> gotcha. But now let's go to Romans three twenty one, because after Paul hashes this whole contradiction out with the other gospel teacher, the other false teacher, whose arrival he anticipates in Rome, 
Paul puts it together here in Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, that's the Torah, the righteousness of God, that's the righteous saving act of God in Christ, again, is being revealed. This reiterates what he said in Romans 1.17, is being apocalypto, revealed, attested, or affirmed or testified to by the Torah, the law, and the prophets. And that begins to be to unveil something to us. The law has a purpose. The Torah, the law, has a purpose. The purpose of the law is not to make us righteous or to, by following it, to justify us. Because Paul will later on say, in a mysterious kind of a way, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. But the law's primary purpose, the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures at large, has the main purpose of testifying to Jesus Christ and his faithfulness. And there, that's how the gospel is in the prophets and the writings and the Psalms and the, the scriptures in general. So Paul said, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, which again we define as the righteous saving act of God in Christ, rescuing his people unconditionally, we could even say is being revealed, attested to by the Torah and the prophets. That being, listen to this, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I say the faithfulness of Jesus Christ? Because ekpistios in Romans 1.17 is the first mention of this phrase from the source, the cause or the reason of Christ's faithfulness, the faithfulness of the righteous one. So the rest of the times when this phrase is used in Romans, it is the same concept. The faithfulness that's being referred to, even if Paul doesn't say the faithfulness of Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus, the intention for that phrase is a faithfulness that he's already defined as being Christ's own faithfulness. So that's why we have in Romans 3.22, that being the righteousness of God or the saving act of God through the fidelity, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. Again, this gets us back to Romans 1.16, to all who believe. That is, this righteousness is manifested, not imputed to, but manifested to, revealed to all who participate in Jesus Christ's faithfulness, for there is no distinction. And then... You see, in context, this looks a lot more beautiful than when you just see it quoted in a tract or in a Romans road thing, which is supposed to make people feel so very bad before they believe in Christ. And it has had the effect of scattering people away from the gospel rather than drawing people to Christ for centuries. But notice what it says in 323, for you see, all sinned. It doesn't say all have sinned in that sense. It says all sinned. At a certain point in time, all the human race sinned, and it was when Adam sinned, when the first man sinned. Paul is doing an ingenious thing here that he's going to climax in Romans 5, where the gospel gets totally unchained, where the problem of man isn't his disobedience to the law, but his ontology in Adam, in the first man, Adam. And it's with regard to that. Not, let me, I'm going to just do this because it's, this, we do this all the time. This isn't just a one-time thing. I want to quote to you something that just blew my mind last night. And I had to read it to Pam, and Pam liked it too. So I tested it out on you, Pam, so everybody else will like it. It's Affirmation 35, Christian Dogmatics. Part 2, Volume 2 of the Doctrine of God, Part 2. Listen to this carefully. I'm going to say it very carefully with regard to human choice. And here it is. Karl Barth, who wrote this, the man who is isolated over against God, we'd call him the sinner. That's what I am. That's what I was before I was in Christ. We all were. The man who is isolated over against God as such is as such rejected by God. Listen to what he says. But to be this man can only be by the godless man's own choice. 
But the witness of the community of God to every individual man consists in this, that this choice of the godless man is void, that he belongs eternally to Jesus Christ and therefore is not rejected, but elected by God in Jesus Christ that the rejection which he deserves on account of his perverse choice is born by Jesus Christ. Whatever you say about Karl Barth, I like this about him, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Abraham. It's not about all the heroes of the faith of Hebrews 11. We go through the whole catalog and then we say, but looking away from all these unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faithfulness who endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now what? Exalted. That's my diagram at the right hand of the Father. So again, listen to what he says. This is all one affirmation. Jürgen Moltmann said with tongue-in-cheek that the 10,000 pages called Christian dogmatics could have been summarized in a half a page. Well, this is That was a little bit of a slam against Mr. Barth, but I think it was friendly, friendly fire. He goes on to say, and that he is appointed to eternal life with God, that is this godless man, on the basis of the righteous divine decision. The righteous divine decision. The promise of his election determines that as a member of the community, he himself shall be a bearer of its witness to the whole world. And the revelation of his rejection can only determine him to believe in Jesus Christ as the one by whom it has been born and canceled. But the main thing I want you to see is the man who is isolated over against God is as such rejected by God. That's all of us in our Adamic ontology. But Jesus Christ did away with our Adamic identification. He goes on to say, but to be this man can only be by the godless man's own choice. So where does human choice come in? Man's own perverse choice to be isolated against God and maybe even to invent a religious system where he can gain merit from God by doing certain things. Maybe even killing infidels in the name of God. That's man in his isolation. God rejects that man as such. But to be this man can only be by the godless man's own choice, which God has rendered void. All right, that's just a preview. I'm going to be working that out in the times to come. But let's continue now in Romans 3. This is all because you asked for lower blade data, Joe. You know that, don't you? It's all because you asked for lower blade data. Okay. To all who believe... Romans 3.21, now apart from the law or adherence to the law, the saving act of God in Christ is being revealed, attested by the Torah and the prophets, that being the saving act of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. To all who believe, that is, this righteousness is manifested to all who participate in Christ's faithfulness. For there is no distinction. And Paul will work this out even more so. For you see, All sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified. That means delivered and rescued from sin and death into life. Justified isn't a legal imputation of righteousness by a God of retributive justice. We've already seen that righteousness is not defined by by justice, but it's dikaiosune is not even defined by righteousness per se, but God's specific righteous act of saving his people and acting to rescue his people through his representative his human and divine representative, Jesus Christ. This is the right thing God did. So where is boasting then with regard to that? It's boasting in the Lord or it's no boasting at all. There's nothing that we can boast in. The teacher asked Paul, in case I don't get to it tonight, because I only got a few more minutes. The teacher asked Paul in Romans 3.27, where is boasting then? There's got to be some kind of boasting. Man has to have the right to, to perform well and be rewarded for his performance and be satisfied and then boast about being a self-made person. Where is boasting then? Paul answers very tersely and says, shut out. It's a total shutout. It's excluded. 
totally. And then Paul goes on to say in Romans 3.28, because it's my fixed position that a person is justified by faithfulness. Work this out more. Again, this is going to be worked out more. So being justified or delivered and rescued, who's being delivered and rescued from sin and death into life? All. All sinned, being delivered, liberated from sin as a power and death as a power into life and being in Christ. That's what this so-called justification means in reality. By what? By faith, no, by grace, by grace, through the redemption wrought in Christ Jesus, which is what? It is the act of God in Christ Jesus on the cross, followed by resurrection. Once again, look at verse 24, being justified, that's delivered and rescued from sin and death into life and into Christ. Dorian is the word next, and that means undeservedly and unconditionally, without a reason, without a cause found in us. The cause is found in God. The the cause is found in the fidelity of someone else besides us. Oh, how I pray that this will hit home. Being justified, delivered and rescued from sin and death, undeservedly and unconditionally by grace, through the redemption wrought in Christ Jesus. That's the redemptive act of God in Christ where while we were yet sinners, while we were yet ungodly, Romans 5, 6 puts it, while we were yet still ungodly, while we were hostile to the very love and benevolence of God that sent his son, Christ died. So while Paul, the writer of this thing, was breathing out how he could murder more Christians in Acts 9-1, God was pleased to reveal his son to him and slam dunk him into Christ by sheer, unadulterated, unconditional, undeserved grace. Am I emphatic about it? I think so. Anyone who knows this ought to be. This is how God exhibited his love in Romans 5, 8, as we're going to see. And so I say, where's the stipulation? Where's the condition to be met by humankind in general or by an individual specifically for the appropriation of this justification if it was wrought when God was in Christ in a saving act toward humankind? Where's the condition? Well, it's nowhere. It's not now here either. It's nowhere. Where's the boasting? Excluded, shut out, but it's replaced. It's put somewhere else. Let's look at it. Verse 25, let's go on because it's through 26 at least that we want to see. God displayed him publicly as the place of expiation through faithfulness, through faithfulness by his blood. You say that my translation doesn't say that. Well, after looking at it for about 40 years, my translation does say that. Because the Greek text does say that. The word faithfulness, again, or faith, is determined by its first use in Romans 1.17. It's a fidelity belonging to Jesus Christ, not to you, not to me, not to Abraham, not to Samson or Sarah or Deborah or anyone else. A fidelity belonging to Jesus Christ. God displayed him publicly. That's the crucifixion on Golgotha. On the skull hill. As the place of expiation. Through faithfulness by his blood. Similar to his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion again in Philippians 2.8. Leading to his blood. His substitutionary death as we might call it. At once we may call it that. For a demonstration of his. His. Righteousness. God's righteousness, that's God's love by which he enacted his all-saving act in Christ. I could say that very bluntly by saying, damn the doctrine of limited atonement. It's a damnable heresy. Limited atonement? It's not what the scripture teaches. This is an all-saving atonement. Through the passing over of sins committed previous to the atonement. So why didn't God slam dunk people in the past for their sins? 
because he withheld until Christ died. So he passed over the sins previously committed. But then what does it say in verse 26? By the forbearance of God toward the demonstration of his righteousness in the present period of time, right now where we live, showing that he is righteous and that he justifies people or saves and delivers and liberates people from sin and death into life and into Christ on the basis of Jesus' faithfulness. Again, faithfulness has to be determined. It's determined by its first use in Romans 1.17, the faithfulness of the righteous one who lives because of his faithfulness. He's resurrected because of his faithfulness. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered over, handed over for our sins and raised up for our justification or our rescue, liberation, our unconditional salvation. So the phrase ekpistios in Romans 1.17, which is essentially equivalent to another phrase, diapistios, used in Romans 3.22 and 3.30, has to be Christologically construed. It has to be the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It's radically centered in the person of Jesus Christ, this whole salvation. And again, where you start to get into the heart of the matter is Romans 5.18, where the gospel is totally unchained, where this justification unto life, this rescue into life from the power of sin and death is for all humankind. And it's granted to all humankind through the faithfulness of another. There is no such thing as my saving faith. There is only such a thing as Christ's saving faithfulness. Get the point of this. Now, there's a lot of questions, and there are a lot of questions put to me, and sometimes I get triangulated by them. Here's one, here's one, here's one. There's some objections. Some of them are pretty fierce. But I can't keep going around looking at everybody who's fiercely opposed to this gospel because I'd be wasting my time. So I'm going to do all the things that I can do to exegete these texts to show you the reality that our salvation lies in the faithfulness of another person named Jesus Christ, not our faithfulness. Romans 3.22, dia pistios, through Christ's fidelity. Romans 3.26, we just saw ek pistios, Jesu, from the source, the cause, the reason of Jesus' faithfulness. Those who are of or benefited by Jesus' faithfulness is us. Romans 3.30 has ekpistios and diates pistios. Romans 4.16, ekpistios twice. Romans 5.1, ekpistios, there it is. Therefore, being justified by what? Faithfulness, the faithfulness of Messiah, we have peace, which is what? Messianic salvation with God. And you know where boasting is? Right here in 5.2. And we boast in the expectation of the glory of God. The boasting has shifted from our deserving to the gift of hope and the eschatological assurance that we will be glorified, as Romans 8.30 says. So where is boasting? It's nowhere when it comes to salvation. But it's now here in Romans 5.2. We'll get to that again tomorrow night, perhaps. So, Romans 9.30, it comes up again. Why is it that the Jews couldn't find this saving deliverance through works, but the pagans found it ek pistios, through the faithfulness of Christ? Romans 9.32, Romans 9.30, Romans 10.6, Romans 14.23. So if this is the case, then the gospel which Paul preaches is massively Christocentric. And the correctness of the conventional construal of justification through the faith of the individual who believes, who cannot make any decision but the perverse decision to be isolated from God and maybe even cloak it with a religious performance in which he expects to hear God say, thank you, well done, very well done. And so, 
Massively Christocentric is this phrase, ek pistios, therefore the correctness of the conventional construal of justification through the faith of the individual who believes, being the condition of salvation or justification, the likelihood that that interpretation is correct is massively reduced. See? So in closing, let's read 327 and following. Just in case you are wondering, I'm demonstrating these truths by getting right into the raw guts of the Greek text here, not just by saying it, I think I believe it because Douglas Campbell wrote about it, I think I believe it because Chris Tilling agreed, and so did Torrance, and so did a lot of other heavyweight theologians. I'm doing it because I see it in the Lord Blade data. Look at Romans 3.27. Here's what I started with. Where is boasting then? This is what the teacher is asking in this dialogue with Paul, in this dialectic of contradictories. Where is boasting then? It's got to be somewhere. Paul says, shut out. Later on, he's going to say, shut in. God shut in everybody in disobedience, Jews and Gentiles alike, so that he could uh, have mercy upon all of them. Teacher, he says, by what kind of law? And the word should be Torah. What kind of Torah? Torah, not just as a law, this is what you should do, do this and live, but Torah as a kind of teaching. By what kind of teaching? What kind of Torah? Shuts out human boasting. And then he says, the teacher says, by a Torah of works? Question mark. Paul says, no, not at all, but by a Torah of faithfulness. By a Torah of faithfulness. By a law of faithfulness. The faithfulness being Messiah's faithfulness. And so here we have the Torah about Christ. Then Paul starts to talk again. And this all leads into Romans 4. This is a lead-in to Romans 4, all this from 3.27 to 31. For my fixed position, that Paul says, as opposed to this other guy's fixed position that were justified by works of the law, my fixed position is that a man is justified, again, delivered from sin and death into Christ in life through a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. Not through his faith, apart from the works of the law, but through a faithfulness, again, Romans 1.17 being the determiner, the faithfulness belongs to Jesus Christ. A man is delivered from sin and death into Christ and life through a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. Then he says this in verse 29, is God the God only of the Jews? Because this teacher, this particular Jewish teacher, and not a Jewish philosophy per, sweat, per se, this particular Jewish teacher was teaching you pretty much have to become a Jew to be saved. You have to be circumcised to be saved. And then follow the Torah, as Acts 15.1 says. And Peter rebuked that guy by saying, we believe that we shall be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus, even as they are the Gentiles. Acts 15.11. So then, Paul is talking to this guy again and taking him to task. He's beating him to a pulp in the ring as we use the pugilistic metaphor Sunday morning. For my fixed position is that a man is delivered from sin and death unconditionally through a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. Is God the God only of the Jews? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Now the teacher has to say, and he does here, yes, he has to concede. Yes, he's the God of the Gentiles. Because in Deuteronomy 32:43, rejoice, you Gentile nations, with God's people, Israel. Is God then a God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the teacher concedes of the Gentiles also through gritted teeth. Verse 30, because, and I like what the Christian, or the, yeah, the complete Jewish Bible says, because as you will admit, which is Paul confirming to another person, that teacher, God is one. That's the whole thing about Israel. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one. God is one. As you will admit, Paul says to this teacher, God is one who delivers the circumcision from the source of faithfulness. Ek pistios, what do you know? From the source, by the cause, through the reason, of the faithfulness that I've already established in Romans 1.17, in my thesis statement, Paul said, is the faithfulness of the righteous one who lives because of his faithfulness. And what did Jesus say about him living according to his faithfulness? Because I live, you will live also. 
Romans, John make that, 14, 19. Who delivers or justifies, let's use the word justifies just so that we can nail this down. It means deliverance, rescue, unconditional salvation. Who delivers the circumcision, that's Jews, from the source of faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness. And the uncircumcision, that's pagans, through the same faithfulness. Dia pistios. Dia tes pistios is an arthrous term or an articular term in which he says through the same faithfulness. The Gentiles, the pagans, are saved or justified unconditionally through the same faithfulness as the uncircumcision. Dia pistios. Messiah's faithfulness to the point of death followed by the consequences of burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. So Paul says in verse 31, do we then abolish Torah, the Old Testament scriptures in general, through the faithfulness of Messiah? Perish the thought. Of course not. Meganoito. On the contrary, we affirm Torah. He's saying, does, does this go against Torah? No, I told you in the very beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ about his faithfulness unto death and his resurrection is affirmed and attested by the prophets and the scriptures. So we're establishing and upholding and affirming Torah by a proclamation of God's saving righteous act in Christ unconditionally of humankind without condition on the part of man where boasting is excluded. And that establishes the Torah in its proper function as a testifying mode for Messiah. You search the scriptures because in them you think you find eternal life. You think if you read all the things you're supposed to do and do them, you'll have the life of the coming age. The whole problem is that you don't come to me. The Torah isn't the sum embodiment of truth. I am, Jesus said, John 14, 6, John 5, 40 also. So here's where boasting is, now here. Nowhere, now here. Romans 5, I'm, I'm doing this because I want to establish this filament. Romans 5.1, being liberated, justified, we could say, rescued, delivered, accordingly, that is from the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 4.25, there should not be a, a chapter division, by, the word is ek here, for the cause or reason of faithfulness. Therefore, being delivered, out of death into Christ, he could say, by this faithfulness. What faithfulness? The faithfulness of the Son of God, the faithfulness of the righteous one who lives because of his faithfulness to the extent of death. Therefore, being liberated by faithfulness, the fidelity of the righteous one, we have peace with God. Peace here is a veritable sense. It means literally messianic salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his fidelity. And so 5.2 says, where is boasting? Through whom also we have access into the grace wherein we stand and we boast in the hope, which is a certain expectation of sharing the glory of God. So, hey, teacher, where is boasting with regard to the condition by which we're saved? It's excluded. But boasting is now here. It's boasting in the absolute certainty of eschatological salvation when all is said and done and when the final judgment is over, final salvation. It is absolute expectation of sharing the glory of God because God is going to be all and in all. That's where boasting is. My boast now is in the Lord. My boast now is comes from God. My hope, says the psalmist in 62.5, comes from God. This expectation comes from God. So where is boasting now? Now it's here. We boast not in our wisdom. We boast not in our strength. We boast not in our intellect or our earthly wealth or riches or our performance up to this date. We boast in the Lord who exercises this saving act of grace in Christ Jesus. All right? That's all we got time for tonight. Thank you, Father, for leading us along in this filament of truth, this unbreakable 
thread of truth, which we've seen now anchored in the scriptures of truth. I'm grateful for that, Father, and I pray that you'll keep showing us, keep leading us, keep teaching us, keep allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, for he is the spirit of truth. We will recognize that the spirit is sidelined by this other gospel, and human performance in the flesh is emphasized. But to us, the spirit is central in teaching, guiding, enabling, empowering, willing, and doing in an ethic which is Christological, Christocentric, a truly ethical Christian existence that's fueled by the power of the Spirit and not the energy of the flesh. Show us.